Good morning, Doxa. How are we doing? Hey, if we haven't met yet, my name's Nate. Someone say hi, Nate. Hey, it's good to be with you guys. Uh, we're in Mark chapter 10. If you've got a Bible, one of the scripture, scripture journals, start opening up there. Um, today we are talking about marriage and divorce. So you're like, sweet, this is the week my friend finally came with me, you know? Cool, love that. Hey, it's just the next chapter, so that's kind of on you for not reading it. But um, guys, whether you've been around Doxa for a while or it's your first time, I love that we open the Bible and we try to take it chapter by chapter. This is not a a passage you would pick if you're trying to just draw a crowd or tell people what they want to hear. This is not the passage that that it's like, man, what's going to give people the warm fuzzies today? But it's it's in God's word for our good. Like it's a genuine privilege for me to open God's word with you and to to talk about God's design for marriage and where that gets broken and the healing God offers. But I don't have to do a lot of work to know that in this room when I talk about marriage and divorce, that can maybe be a pain point. That can, that can be a soft spot in your heart. There's something tender that can get poked on when we start talking about these things. We're gonna see in this passage that the Pharisees, these religious leaders were trying to draw Jesus into a debate about marriage and divorce because, because there's nothing new under the sun. They were dealing with these things back then as well. But even the concept of marriage in our culture has kind of fallen on hard times. Maybe you grew up in a home where, where you didn't really know what marriage was supposed to be or look like, or you saw examples of things and you said, I'm never doing that. Maybe you've been through the pain of divorce or your parents being divorced. Maybe you've watched friends and you, you stood with them at their wedding and now they, they'll never speak to each other, be in the same room again. Again, I don't have to do a lot of work to to show you where this goes wrong and and leads to a lot of pain. Sometimes even generational sin and pain where you've inherited the weight of baggage where you, again, you don't even know what this is supposed to look like and and how you're supposed to walk in. You're doing your best, but man, what do we do here? There was a... um, kind of premarital counseling and then a post-divorce survey that the National Library of Sciences did. And 75% of the couples that got divorced in this study said, well, it was a lack of commitment that caused the divorce. But even in that, it's a commitment to what? Commitment to a feeling or or a person or an idea or what we, we kind of don't even know what we're talking about anymore when it comes to this topic. Maybe in the room you're not married and you're like, sweet, another week I'm gonna feel left out, right? Cool, my singles in the room are like, yeah, cool, man, I'll show up next week, I guess. Like, what, what, what does this have to do with me? If this isn't where I'm at, like, why, why are you even having this conversation? Even as we talk about the idea of marriage, you can feel like you're, you're kind of pushed off into a separate category, sort of left out there to hang until you're married like the rest of those people. Can I just say that there is actually something in God's word for you too, even if you're not married here this morning? Now, now, some of it is statistically the, the vast majority of people in our culture will still get married, so there's something about your future here. And I know many of you desire to be married. So there's something here for your future that you can learn to not shipwreck a marriage like you've seen so many happen. There, there's something there. But even more than that, Jesus is, is inviting us to do new, a new kind of family. When you're part of this family, when you're investing and loving in other people in this family, you actually get a front row seat to marriages and you might be the person God is inviting to speak in his truth and his light and his life. Even if this isn't for your position relationally right now, this might actually be for the people around you. God might be inviting you to reflect his words back to people that you get to love and care about. You have a task and a mission. You have a responsibility as part of this church family to help marriages be healthy and thrive. Even more than that, Jesus is gonna take this to a deeper level than just relational status. He's actually gonna start pressing into deeper things in our life that you will see yourself reflected too in here if you're listening. Now some of us in the the room this morning are not Christians and you are in exactly the right place. I'm so glad you're here. But I've known men and women who have said, yeah, I'm actually not a Christian because of the way that the church handled my parents' divorce. We were part of a church, we were part of a community, and they, and they, they kicked us out. We were struggling and suffering, and they, they cast us away. They didn't treat us well, and so I'm not going back. I don't want anything to do with it. Or maybe you, you know of stuff in your life that doesn't line up with the Bible, and you're like, yeah, I don't think I've got a place in a room like this. What if, just, just walk with me here for a second, what if you haven't actually 
met Jesus and accepted or rejected him? What if you've actually just rejected people? What if you don't even know how God designed marriage or, or what he's inviting you into? What if you're responding to pain that people have caused in your life that, that, was, that wasn't right? I, I'm not gonna judge their hearts or intentions, but what if you're rejecting people you don't even actually know what Jesus is inviting you into? Can you at least entertain that possibility with me this morning? Can you at least lean in and go, okay, Jesus, what are you trying to say to me today? And for, for all of us, whatever your, your relationship status, whether you're married or single or your marriage is thriving or on the rocks or, or whatever, God's word has something really beautiful and important for us if we're willing to listen and lean in. So, so we're talking about this concept of marriage and this debate about divorce, but we're going somewhere deeper together if we're gonna lean into what Jesus had to say. Does that sound good? Someone say, yep. All right, Mark chapter 10, get there, let's go. Um, and can I just, just say a, a word about the tone of this message? I don't think Jesus' point in this passage is to shame or condemn. And that's not my goal or desire in this message either. And so if you, if you feel a level of shame or condemnation coming out of this, I just want you to know that is not my voice and not my heart. Would you question that voice? Like if there's a voice inside of you that's saying, yeah, these people don't get me. These people don't like me. They don't want me. Would you just take a step back and examine that and invite Jesus' voice to be louder? This passage is not to shame you or crush you or hurt you. There's an invitation here. And so if you've got a voice inside that's saying, don't listen, put up your guard, question that voice. Okay? Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Let's go to work. And he, Jesus, left there and went to the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. So Jesus has been in Capernaum, he's been in Galilee, he's been, he's been in some regions teaching, and Mark likes to show us a shift in topic or, or a shift in teaching based on geography. Jesus has told his disciples he is the Savior coming, he's going to die and be raised to life, and now he's set his face towards Jerusalem, but he's not there yet. So he's in a Jewish region that people are familiar with the Old Testament law, and, and he's teaching them like was his practice. And in this Jewish region, like we've seen over and over again, the religious leaders, the rabbis, the Pharisees are going to come and try to test him and challenge him. Look at verse 2. Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? On the surface, it looks like a simple question, kind of a legal question, finer points question, but look at their motives there. They're trying to test him. They want to trap him. All the way back in chapter three, we saw that they've been working relentlessly to try to undermine and destroy his ministry. And eventually we're gonna see they destroy his body on a cross. Their motives here are not to, to get some good answers, but to trap Jesus. But why is the legality of divorce, why is that the thing that they're picking on? Like why is that the context of, of this conversation here? Again, Jesus isn't kind of bringing up marriage and divorce out of the blue. They are inviting this conversation to test him. It's because back in their day, there were different um, schools, different disagreements from different rabbis about what was legal or permissible with marriage and divorce. The Old Testament has kind of a brief passage talking about the results of what happens in divorce, but different rabbis came up with different case studies and examples of when it was permissible or allowable in their communities for it. So one rabbi, Shammai, said, hey, if there's sexual unfaithfulness in the marriage, you can get divorced. That was kind of the most theologically conservative end. On the other extreme, there's a rabbi named Halal that said, hey, husbands, if there's anything displeasing in your wife, you can divorce her. If she looks at you wrong, if she burns the dinner, like that was literally an example, like get her out of here. Now women, imagine you're like cooking over a fire, right? Like, hey, be like that's so, it's, someone say bananas, right? Like that's crazy. There was even a, 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 in that school of thought, there was someone that went so far to say, it is your moral obligation if there's something that displeases you about your wife to divorce her. If you see another woman who is more attractive to you, it's your moral obligation to divorce your wife. Crazy, okay? That, that's ridiculous. That's not actually in the Old Testament. That was just kind of what rabbis thought and articulated and worked through. The, the Pharisees are saying, all right, Jesus, pick a side. Who are you with? Why do you think they're doing that? They, they want Jesus to pick a team so that they can have people on the opposite team gang up and undermine him. They can divide the crowd based on what Jesus' opinion is. It seems almost innocuous on the surface, but they, they want Jesus to be trapped and undone in this based on what he says. It doesn't matter what he says, they're trying to get him. But Jesus, in classic Jesus fashion, he, he answers their question with another question. Questions are often more powerful than statements. Look what he says in verse three. He answered them, what did Moses command you? 
I'm not going to enter into the rabbi debate. I'm not going to quote your different teachers. Let's go back to God's word. And when he says, what did Moses command you? He's talking about the first five books of the Old Testament. They, they call it the books of Moses, right? The Pentateuch. He's saying, okay, what do you see in God's word? Let's, let's step away from human opinion and go back to God's word. What do you see? Now, they're going to answer, but they're still going to dodge what Jesus is asking. Verse four, they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Again, no circumstances, no, no caveats. They kind of blanket, just give this whole thing so that Jesus still has to pick a side. Yeah, Moses allowed this. Send the wife away. But Jesus, who's right? Which, which team are you on, Jesus? Now, he, he's gonna take this much deeper than they expected. He's actually gonna go beyond what they thought and expected this conversation would be back to God's design and root. What did God mean when he designed marriage. Look at verse five. Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Maybe you've heard that read at a wedding, something like that. Look at the, the pieces of what Jesus says. First off, he says there's a root issue here and it's the heart. Someone say heart. We're gonna unpack what that means in a minute, but he's saying, hey, this wasn't God's original design intention, but as a result of sin and the fall, Jesus created an opportunity for people to be protected. He's saying, actually, there would be circumstances in marriage where someone's heart would be so hard, it would be a grace and a help to their partner to have protection and separation. There would be situations where, especially in their context, men would, would look for something to divorce their wife in and try to just treat them like objects and pass them off. And so it would be a grace and a help because of the reality of sin for there to be a way for the wife to be protected. That's not any and all circumstance they could come up with. God had intention and design, but, but he doesn't settle for that thing. He actually takes us to God's good design because if we never look at, at the good design, what it was made for, we never actually understand if it's broken or working. If you don't look at, at what the inventor said the invention is for, then you don't know if it's working the way it's supposed to. So he says, this is an exception because of the reality of sin, but look at the purpose God designed it for. From the beginning, God created the male and female. He created this reality of marriage. It's a gift from God and, and it actually expresses what God is like. The two become one. Well, let's just take a second and, and unpack that in a minute, but, but our passage isn't done yet. So we're gonna get into those details in just a minute. But Jesus' disciples, these young unmarried guys are overhearing this conversation and what Jesus is saying is different than everything else they've heard. They've heard all these debates. They've probably seen people divorce in their lives and communities. What Jesus is saying is radically different, so they've got some questions, right? Verse 10. In the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. They need clarification. They are confused. He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. If she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now again, I know in a room like this, that can, that can land heavy. We're gonna get there, we're gonna unpack it in a minute, please stick with me, but, but look at how Jesus is even double tapping on the hardness of heart piece of it. He's saying, hey, if the husband divorces his wife to go be with another woman, if his hardness of heart is showing up in that action, he's got an excuse, yeah, yeah, yeah burn the dinner, whatever, but, but if he's going just to chase someone else, he's actually breaking that one flesh union. And if she finds an excuse or a reason to divorce him, she's doing the same. That, that divorce and remarriage piece, that adultery piece he's talking about is a result of a hardness of heart showing up in action. Again, this is, this is not the only spot where the Bible talks about marriage and divorce and remarriage. But Jesus is really clear. He's not just diving into the rabbinic debates. He's trying to highlight God's good design and creation. Let's, let's just unpack that for a minute. Again, we've got to look at what the inventor says it's for. First off, we see marriage was invented by God. This is God's idea. This is God's design. He is the one that sets the rules and parameters and guidelines for what this is supposed to be. He says if it's healthy or not. That doesn't mean every marriage in every culture or society reflects God's design, but that he does have a specific design for us as his people to see. Another thing we see is that God made male and female. This isn't a whole message about gender debates in our society and transgenderism, but 
but it's really clear the whole storyline of scripture that God created male and female and marriage is for a man and a woman. And he's quoting Genesis, God's creation account. He's showing that from the beginning to the end of the Bible, there's a consistent message about what marriage is supposed to be and look like. We'll get to ideas of like, man, has that changed over time or whatever, just a little bit in a little while, but that's super clear from Scripture. And in male and female coming together, there's a complementing to each other. Actually, maleness and femaleness are good things that God invented and designed. Now, no one particular culture has a lock on what that's supposed to look like, right? I've, I've lived places in the world where, where we would say, oh man, those guys are wearing what look like dresses, but, it, but it's just like normal in their society, right? We don't say, hey, what America's perception of maleness in 2023 or femaleness in 2023, that's what God meant. Or 1950 or 2050 or whatever, right? But there's a reality embedded in creation of sex difference, And because of this, we actually value and affirm the dignity of each other in this. There's no place in God's design for men looking at women as as worse or weaker or, or whatever categorically. That chauvinism has no place in God's design for marriage. And there's been a reaction in our society of kind of radical feminism of saying, well, men are the issue, men are the problem, men should stop doing this. There's no place for that either. We don't devalue or dishonor each other. We actually honor the other even as God made us different. We compliment each other. One amen, that's cool, I'll take that, okay. So the first thing we see is God invented it, and then the second thing we see is that God designed male and female for marriage to complement each other. The last thing we see is, is almost the hardest one for us to understand. The two shall become one flesh. This isn't a contract of convenience that you can amend and change and break whenever you want. This isn't just based on the other person holding it up, this is actually a covenant. I don't know about you, but we, I didn't make a covenant this week. That's not, that's like normal language in our life. Back in college, like freshman year, guys were like, bro, let's make a covenant together. Grab this Frisbee. We're gonna be friends for life, right? I covenant, and they don't talk anymore. But like, we don't use this language of covenant, but the Bible, covenant is rich. A covenant is, man, like God making a covenant with his people where he's saying, hey, I'm going to hold up my bargain based on my character and nature. When, when he talks about a covenant between two people becoming one, there's something mystical and spiritual happening, not just a contract. Two people entering into a radical new relationship with God and each other that changes what you are, who you are. It's based on serving the other and self-giving, not, not what you can take or them holding up their end of the bargain. It's a reflection of God's character. In fact, when these two becoming one, these two people, different persons, now one reality is a reflection of what God is like. Three persons, but one God. He's woven it into the structure of our relationships to reflect what he is like. That's his good design for marriage. It's a gift that you can voluntarily enter into where you change and you reflect what he is like to a watching world. So where does this go wrong? Why is this picture like so broken in what we see today? Well, uh, the Bible is super clear on this too. Look at what Jesus said in verse five. He said, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. That when the Bible uses heart, it's not just talking about emotions or feelings. It's talking about the deepest place of your passions and your loves. When the Bible uses the word heart, it's saying your will is gonna flow out of the things that you most care about and desire. It's the seat of what you love. We even have this idea of like that person died of a broken heart, right? Like we, we kind of use it in silly ways, but, but there's something real about that. If, if the things that you love most deeply, if that's completely snapped and broken and never healed, you lose the power to live and move on. So what is a hard heart then? A hard heart is a heart that, that is so resistant to the voice of God that it doesn't matter what he says or commands or invites or asks. That heart says, no, 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 I love what I love. I will do what I will do. I will not listen to you. I, I've already got my own direction, my own way, my own whatever, so you can join me if you want to, God, but I'm not gonna submit to you. And a hard heart could look dispassionate, as in I don't really care about anything, whatever, or a hard heart can be very passionate about something. You can be in love with what you love and just resistant to what God says, so it's like he's talking to a brick wall. If your heart is hard and you love money, it doesn't matter what God says about your stuff. It's not gonna change. 
Or if it makes you feel good, maybe you'll give a little bit, but ultimately God's voice isn't loudest. It's what you love that matters. That's, that's the root of so many of these things, our hearts growing hard and callous. That was true then and that is true for us today. But I do think there's a nuance to this in our day and our culture where there are some lies that we, we've believed. I'm just gonna be honest with you. I think I was probably more discipled on the playground about sex and about marriage and all those things than, than by the Bible. I, I think you and I, if we're honest with each other, we're probably more discipled by The Bachelor than the Bible or by Pretty Woman and The Notebook than God's covenant and character or by James Bond and whatever girls rather than Jesus Christ. You and I are, are swimming in lies that have become so normal to us we forget what those even mean and those inform how we think about this whole conversation. I actually just want to make explicit some of those lies that, that I encountered in studying this passage um, and, and then we'll talk a little bit more about as it breaks, how does God design wholeness and healing? How do we change through this? But first, let's look at the lies. Let's look at the first lie. Marriage completes you. I need another person to be whole. You've maybe never heard it phrased this way, but you've seen it show up in your life and lives of people you love. This longing and a desire and a dissatisfaction that feels like, man, if I'm alone, then I can't live. If there's not another person to love me and see me and affirm me in this particular way, then, then what is my life for? What is it about? And you don't have to be married to believe this lie. You Single friends, you've seen this in the pattern that you felt alone and abandoned or, or you've lived so long going relationship to relationship or at least we're talking, right? You're never not talking with somebody because your heart is desiring to find a person to complete you. But that doesn't get better in marriage. Spouses, amen, right? Like you look at this other person and you're like, why, why can't you give me what I need? Why can't you, why can't you do this for me? And you see this pattern in people going from marriage to marriage trying to find another person to do this thing for them that that person was never designed to do. Another human being cannot complete you. They can compliment you. It can be a great joy, but they can never complete you and do what your soul really needs it to do. Marriage cannot complete you. Another human being like that cannot complete you. But if you've been living in this pain and dissatisfaction or going relationship to relationship or, or feeling like your marriage is, is broken because there's something missing in you, maybe you've been operating out of this lie. There's another lie that kind of complements this one. Go to the next one for me. Sexual fulfillment is what makes a meaningful life. Again, you maybe have never like said this or framed it like this, but for, for multiple generations now, we've been on this, this trajectory of separating out sex from marriage and trying to, to highlight this myth that your sex appeal or how much sex you have or whatever is the key to your fulfillment and satisfaction. My wife and I were watching a documentary. It had nothing to do with this subject, but, but um, this guy kind of casually said, yeah, I think, you know, a healthy sex life is the key to a meaningful life. And I was like, what the? And, it, and they just moved on. It was just kind of this weird, funny aside, and, like, nobody questioned it or challenged it because we all, on some level, have heard it, and for many of us, we've believed it. You've, you've seen the pain of people going from relationship to relationship trying to find sexual fulfillment. Or you've seen people who, in marriage, realize that they can't get this thing that they want from their spouse and so that their eyes start to wander to other places. We as a culture have believed this lie that, that somehow sexual fulfillment is, is actually what the meaning of life is, the value of life. You don't have to be looking at porn on the internet to believe this. You can actually have this deep in your heart. This is maybe the, the lie that the longing in your heart has attached to. And if we've believed these two lies, this actually makes the whole conversation about marriage and especially gay marriage more difficult for us to engage with. Because follow this with me, if we believe the lie that you need another person to complete you, and we believe the lie that sexual fulfillment is how you find a meaningful life, and then you look at someone who, who has same-sex attraction, if you're denying the marriage, then fundamentally you're denying them value and worth and, and meaning in their life, Right? So that, that even makes this whole conversation for us in our city, in our day, more difficult because we haven't actually examined the lies that we've been operating out of. Sometimes Christianity has a sexual prosperity gospel where we say, if you just try hard enough to be a good boy or girl, you have great sex in marriage. We just play these same games with ourselves and believe the lies instead of examining them, interrogating them, and holding them up to the light of God's word. Let's go to another lie. Y'all with me? Okay. Here's a lie. The Bible teaches an outdated view of sexuality and human relationships. 
So marriage, the way the Bible talks about it, is just not relevant anymore. It's outdated. Can I just try to kindly say I think this is a pretty uninformed view? Even just the little bit that we've talked about, the rabbi's perspectives here, that there's nothing new under the sun. We might use different words or different terms or have different legal structures, but these same issues have been at play for, for as long as humans have been around. These same issues were in their culture in the Middle East in the first century as they are today. And, and that's just looking at the Jewish world, not even the Roman world or the Greeks before them. There, there's nothing new under the sun. And when Jesus brings it back to God's creation, intention, and design, he's saying God's truth actually supersedes all culture. God has a truth and a design that actually works with whatever culture or situation you find yourself in. You could be in Madison, you could be in the Middle East, you could be in in China, you could be wherever, and God's truth would still apply of how he designed and set up marriage to be. Let's look at the next lie. No one gets my situation, so they can't really speak into it. This is a painful lie because it's wrapped up in, in what feels like maybe the most truth. Because no one else is in your exact same relationship or has your exact same history. There's a, there's a truth to this that, that maybe has even been propped up by friends trying to, be, trying to help you with being clumsy, not being helpful sometimes when they're trying to step in or whatever. There, there actually can be a lot of truth that nobody knows your situation and it's caused more pain. But it's a lie because God's truth transcends your experience and my experience. God's truth actually is relevant for you no matter what you've been through. God is not surprised by it. He's not caught off guard. He, he, he's not looking at your life and going like, man, never thought I'd see one of those. Okay, here we go, you know? But God loves you enough to actually have a design for you, an intention, and he loves you enough to give other people to try to help speak in, even if they're clumsy about it. Even if I'm clumsy about it, the, the voice of God actually can, can speak into your situation even if other people haven't lived what you've lived. Let's go to the last lie we've got here. I can't be close to God if I've been divorced or had sexual sin in my past. This is the voice of shame and condemnation I talked about earlier. This is the voice that actually has maybe made it hard for you to engage in community or come in a context like this. This is a lie. When you look at the way that Jesus treated people who, who had brokenness in relationships or sexual sin in their lives, he didn't cast them away or push them aside. He, he met with them and he showed that he knew them and loved them. He didn't ignore the sin and brokenness in their life. He, he knew it, but he actually loved them and engaged with them. If you look at John 4, the woman at the well, Jesus says, hey, I see that you've had multiple husbands and the man you're with now is not your husband. But he doesn't do that to try to smack her down or push her away, but to invite her in to see him as a savior, as the one that could actually fulfill the longing in her heart that had led to so much brokenness in her life. If you were feeling this morning like you were too dirty or distant or, or whatever, even the relationship you're in right now, if there's brokenness in that and you feel like you can't be close to God, can I just tell you, please, that is a lie. That's not how Jesus treats you. I do think the Bible has clarity for us around the issue of divorce and remarriage. I do think there, there are really clear spots in the New Testament that try to teach us and show us what happens when someone's heart is so hard that things go wrong in a marriage. There's one example that's, that's not about hardness of heart, but, but the Bible's consistent that if, if your spouse dies, it's okay for you to get remarried. You don't have to, but it, it's okay for you to get remarried if you want to. But then in Matthew 19, verse 9, Jesus says, hey, if your spouse is sexually unfaithful to you, you, you can get divorced and remarried. It's not quite those exact words. He didn't say it like that, whatever, but um, there are some situations where that, that one flesh union is broken. Now, reconciliation, healing, restoration is possible, but Jesus is saying it's, it's not sin for you to, to get a divorce and then be remarried in, in that particular situation. The other situation where we have clarity from Scripture is in 1 Corinthians 7, where if you're married to someone who's not a Christian and they choose to leave you and get a divorce, then, then you're free to get remarried. Those are the clear divorce and remarriage situations in Scripture. I, I do think there's another situation where, where divorce and protection because of hardness of heart is a reality. If you're being abused and brutalized by your spouse, we as a church would want to help you get safe and get protection. And if that means like legal separation or divorce to protect your kids, your assets, whatever, we would want to help you do that. We don't, we're not putting you back in a situation where you're going to be beat up and hurt and abused. That is not right. 
but unless your spouse then goes off and, and gets married again or whatever, we'd say, okay, remain single as part of this family and community. We wanna help you and, and pay for hotel rooms and furniture and apartments. We wanna be with you in that. But until they break that one flesh union in the way that Jesus talked about, then, then don't get remarried. I don't know how those things hit you this morning, but can I just say over and over, whether it's those lies or whether it's those situations, it's an example of the full flourishing of a hard heart. If your heart is so hard that you're going to go and try to find sexual gratification outside of your marriage, that's fruit of a hard heart. If you're going to hurt your spouse, that is fruit of a hard heart. That's the brokenness that sin introduces into God's good design for marriage. And now maybe you're like, well, hey, I haven't been divorced, I'm doing good, right? I haven't broken the rules, I can, I can check the boxes, I'm doing okay. You don't have to be married to have a hard heart. You don't have to be in a certain relationship to have a hard heart. Again, if a hard heart is about listening to the voice of God, you, you can be married, single, or whatever, and still have a heart that is resistant to what God says. That's the dangerous thing about listening to Jesus and reading the word. He, he actually is going to hit you right where you're at. It is entirely possible for you to, to skate by looking at all the rules and going, yep, I got that, I got that, I got that, and underneath of a heart that is resistant to God. You might have such a hard heart that you're actually making life miserable for your spouse and your kids because it's your passions and loves that are on the throne and not Jesus. Or you can be single and so in love with the idea of love and a future spouse, it doesn't matter if God is inviting you to a good gift of singleness because you have a vision in mind of your life, it doesn't matter what God says to it. It is possible for every single one of us to have a hard heart that is resistant to the voice of God. It doesn't matter your marital status. This is a danger we are all prone to fall into and we see the fruit of that in our lives and relationships other places too. So what's the answer to a hard heart? Like if, if all of us actually, if the ground is level, whatever your relationship status or history, how do we begin to change? It's not just more rules, it's not just checking the boxes and making sure you don't get divorced or whatever. Something fundamentally inside has to change. I think you can summarize this with the sentence here. Walking in God's design overflows from a transformed heart. If a hard heart is the problem, a transformed heart is the thing we need to begin to walk in a new kind of obedience to God. And this is part of the amazing thing that Jesus did for us. On the cross, I hope you've heard the good news that, that Jesus offers for forgiveness for your sin as the final sacrifice. You don't have to try to pay God back or whatever. Jesus is the final sacrifice, but he does more than just forgive you of sin. He actually gives you a new heart where you can learn to obey God. That's one of the amazing promises from the prophet Jeremiah that God told him, I'm gonna take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, a heart that is soft to me. I'm gonna write my law on your heart so you don't have to just listen to rules, but you will overflow with a desire to obey, a desire to be changed, a desire to walk in relationship with God. That is what Jesus is offering. If you've heard of this kind of cheap grace thing where God will forgive you and you kind of do what you want along the way, that is not what he offers he offers you a completely renovated and transformed heart where the things that you love and are passionate about are different now because of him. And if you have not accepted Jesus, I, I'm not telling you go out and try hard to have a better marriage. I'm telling you, you need him first and foremost. Now, coming to Jesus might save your marriage. It literally might save your relationship because you've got a new love for God that overflows in love for people or it might make your marriage harder. It might make everything harder because you now love God and if the person you're with doesn't love God, you're moving in two different directions throughout life. Again, this is not like a, a marriage prosperity message where it's like, just trust Jesus and everything will be fine. That, that's not it. The Bible is way more real than that. But if you following God is gonna cost you your marriage, let me just say, I think your soul is worth it. Whatever pain is on this side of eternity. I don't say that cheaply or lightly, but following Jesus is worth whatever it costs. So friends, what do we, what do, we do with a message like this? Like I, I think the question we need to wrestle with is how do I cultivate a soft heart instead of a hard heart? I think one of the main practices we need to have is confession. 
And we as a church, we don't have like a booth you go to. I don't put on a collar and, you know, whatever. But, but confession is this, this crazy reality in the Bible where God knows all of our sin, but he still invites us to talk to him about it and talk to people about it. If you think about it, that's kind of weird if he knows it all, right? But, but he's inviting us to actually talk to each other about our sin and then receive grace as we, we share the gospel again and remind each other again of what he's done for us. Confession is like looking at this stone of a hard heart and just taking a hammer to it again. I'm not gonna let my, my passions and my loves be stuck and forced there. Confession begins to crack at that hard heart to let in the light of God and listen a little bit more to what he has to say, especially as our brothers and sisters speak the grace of God over us. Speak God's hope to us. Speak our identity in Jesus to us. Pursuing Jesus in personal relationship is the most important thing you can do for your marriage or your singleness, for the health of our church. And if statistics are to be believed, guys, we know we're supposed to pursue Jesus, but Christians are getting divorced at about the same rate as everyone else. So, so it sounds like we know the right answer and we're not living it. It sounds like you and I need to take this more seriously and beg God to help us cultivate a soft heart. I think we need to begin confessing, especially in the little things. And when you confess the little things, they tend to not build up as much to be big things. I just want to give you an example of where I've done this really badly. Does that sound good? Someone say, yep. Okay, okay great. Um, I, I tend to think I'm really smart and right all the time. And the men in the room were like, amen. Okay. Um, and this showed up in my marriage when I would um, speak really confidently about things and, and pontificate on different issues when I had no idea what I was talking about, but I sounded really right when I said it, and I kind of convinced myself as I said it, you know what I'm talking about? So this showed up one time, especially when I was um, talking about the sound that seahorses make. You know seahorses, right? And I was saying some nonsense about what they sounded like because that was the conversation, and I was definitely right about it. And my wife goes, you don't know what seahorses sound like? I was like, well, I mean, but it sounds good. She's like, no, no, I know you don't know. I don't know what they sound like, but I know you don't know what they sound like. I was a bit insufferable, I'm not gonna lie to you guys. And my hard heart had, had an identity wrapped up in being right and sounding smart. And one of the practices I'm trying to do and not doing it perfectly is, is take a hammer to that by admitting when I'm wrong. And that sounds so simple, but, but for me it's been hard where I, I literally have to train myself in conversations to come back and go, oh, I was wrong about that. Oh, I said that and that, that wasn't right. And I don't do it perfectly, but I'm trying to, day by day, even just confess, like, hey, I'm not right in the way that I said I was right. Take a hammer to it little by little. And this is where community is so vital for each other. In Connection Group, one of my friends in Connection Group was confessing that his inner lawyer is so well-trained that he he never really feels um, conviction of sin because he always has a reason for it. And whenever he does something wrong, he has a reason, and so he doesn't really feel anymore what, what he's doing wrong because he always feels justified. And we couldn't solve that for him. I couldn't give him a magic conviction pill, but, but we prayed for him. And God answered that prayer even the next week where he began to see his sin more clearly. Now, the timing was bad because he was on vacation, and so it was rough for his wife and kids, but, but it was beautiful. It was an example of community together, and you don't have to be married to, to be able to pray for people in your life. You need to invest in community who's gonna help you and point you back to God before you need community. Does that make sense? Like the day you need community, you hopefully already have community because you've invested in men and women around you. That looks like pursuing Jesus alongside people. That looks like inviting people into what you're learning and growing in and struggling with. That looks like praying for each other. Uh, Single people, that looks like being a part of families and and talking to each other about these things and inviting people into your life. And and married people, it looks like inviting single people into your family and and talking and, and, and unpacking what God is teaching because the Spirit is gonna speak through the word to each other all over the place. And you need the people that are gonna say the hard thing, the true thing to you, not just the thing you wanna hear before, before you're in the tough spot. And guys, let me just be clear that you could go on the internet and find an article that will tell you whatever you wanna hear about your marriage situation, whether you get divorced or not. You can find someone who will already agree with the thing that you want to do. In my previous context, there was a woman who came to me and some of the pastoral staff and said, hey, I went to a counselor and, and the counselor told me that I should get a divorce. I'm like, oh, okay, help us understand what, what's going on. She said, well, my, my husband's committed adultery against me. Wow, yeah, I mean, we want to talk to him, but help, like, what, what happened? She said, well, he, he works too much. 
Okay, wait, what do you mean? Well, my counselor said he, his mistress is his job, and so he's committed adultery with his job, and so I'm going to get a divorce from him. And we, we wanted to talk to the husband and help him actually treat his wife better. We wanted, we wanted reconciliation, but we told her, I don't think that, I don't think that that's the right situation, the, the, the right step for you. I think you should long for reconciliation, but I don't think divorce is actually, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. And we as her, her shepherds and her church community who were trying to love her and be in that with her, she, she was angry with us. And I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna pretend to know her heart motivations or her husband or whatever, but, but from the outside as someone trying to step in and, and talk to her about it, her heart was already hard, had already been made up in the direction she was gonna go. It didn't really matter what we said, what verses we had, whatever. That, we became the other team when we didn't agree with what she already wanted to do. You need Christians who are loving Jesus and loving you actively and ongoing for you to deal with these things well. Not just whatever voice will already agree with you. I'm out of time, but there's one last thing I need to say. If you are, if you are feeling shame from divorce or brokenness or whatever in your life, if you see yourself in this, let me just invite you again, look at how Jesus treated people like you and like me. How did Jesus treat prostitutes? How did Jesus treat the woman at the well? How did Jesus treat the woman who, who washed his feet with, with her tears and, and perfume? He didn't pretend sin didn't exist, but he loved them, fully knew them, and dealt with their sin. There is no place for shame and condemnation in your life because Jesus is inviting you to find reconciliation with him and healing. He doesn't shame you. He, he actually covers you with honor and dignity because of his love. Come to him. Bring your condemnation and shame and put it at his feet and let him write a new story and identity over you, a heart that will begin to obey. Not to prove something to him or anyone else, but because he already loves you. We all need that this morning. Doxa, let me just pray and invite God to work this incredible reality in our lives as we have soft hearts to his voice and lives overflowing in obedience as a, res- as a result. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that we actually get to deal with these things together. That we get to gather together and and hear from your word and that it's applicable, it's relevant, it is real for us today, right here and right now. Thank you, Jesus, that you don't hide the truth from us, but you invite us in to listen and respond to your voice. And I pray, Spirit, that you would meet us where we're at this morning begin to cultivate soft hearts as we listen for your voice. Would you help us be people that confess the little things and let the the hard hearts that we have, the places getting hard, be, be, be hit over and over and over again so that grace and light and life can come through. And we'll be, we be a church that is an example of your kindness and goodness to a watching world as we delight in you and what you've done in us. Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen. So, Doxa, here's, here's what we're going to do. You know, as we engage with a scripture like this, um, we know that every word breathed out by God is for our good. So God is a father and he's trying to help us. We also know that, man, there's probably a lot of feelings, a lot of emotions, a lot of thoughts going on in this moment. And one of the great blessings and gifts of the church, the family of God, is One of our goals here, guys, is that we want to be a church where no one has to walk alone. This is family. And so as Nate was talking, like, we get to process with each other and pray for each other. It's one of the goals. But it's not, like, the primary goal of just to create a bunch of friends in here. We we also have the goal of, like, we want to help you to learn to hear the voice of God. And this is why we open up the Bible every time we gather. Because we want to teach you to hear from God guys, there's even more that we want to help you to learn to talk to God. And this is prayer. Prayer is just communication and communion with God. And so what we're going to do is we're actually going to spend some time praying together. And as we do that, I want to, I just want to talk to the three groups of people that are represented in this room right now. There's, there's some of you that you have gone through divorce. And maybe you're the one that has been left and hurt and just broken 
and there's a lot of stuff and, and maybe you could be like, Rob, you're not divorced. You've never walked through that. You don't get it. I get what you're saying. I get what Nate was teaching, but you don't get it. You might be right. You are right. I don't fully get that, but I want you to know that God gets it. Maybe you're the one that had to leave and you chose to leave and you are racked with guilt and shame. You have the great gift of being able to talk to God in prayer. There's another group in here that you're, you're married and all of our marriages exist in one of three categories. All right, there's marriages in this room right now where you are back to back, meaning like you are not looking at each other in the eyes. There is conflict. There is not unity. You're in the same house with a person, but you feel completely alone. There is hurt. There's unresolved conflict. You're, you're back to back. You can talk to God and he can help you. There's other marriages in here that you're shoulder to shoulder. You are great teammates, you're great coworkers, you're paying your bills, the kids get to their practices on time, all of that stuff, but there is no intimacy, there's no friendship, and you feel alone. You can talk to God, he can help. And there's some of you in here that your, your marriage is not back to back, shoulder to shoulder, but you're face to face, which is the Bible's language for friendship. And this is God's created design for your marriage is that you would be face-to-face, -face, friendship, unity, intimacy. And you too can talk to God and thank him and ask him to keep that going. But there's another group of people in here that you're single and you're like, man, I don't know how this is relating to me. Maybe you're sitting here with your parents, docs of youth, and you're like, I don't know what the heck to even think about this. You can talk to God for your brothers and sisters you can talk to God for the marriages surrounding you. You can talk to God for the parents that you're sitting by and for their marriage. You can talk to God and ask him to help, to heal, to transform, to strengthen. You can talk to God. And so we're gonna pray. We're gonna take some time just to go before the Father. And if you're in that camp of like, man, you have walked through divorce and there is hurt, there is loneliness, there's grief, there's anger, there's bitterness. I want you to know that we actually believe that there is true power in prayer, that God meets us and he helps us and he changes us and he sets us free and he improves things and he pushes us forward and he strengthens us while he works. And so in this time, you talk to God in that way. If you're married, let me just encourage you to do this. I want you to grab your spouse's hand right now. And I know, guys, there are some of you here that this is a hard thing for you to do right now. I've been there where you're like, I don't know if I want to grab her hand right now. I am hurt. But grab your spouse's hand right now and we're gonna pray. And wherever you're at in your marriage, ask God to help you. If you're just conflicted, if you're not together, Ask God to show you your sin, not their sin, but show you your sin. Where have you been selfish? Where have you been absent? Where have you been unkind? If we would just go to work with our own sin, our marriages would get better. And if you're in that place where you're like, man, you're enjoying the friendship and the unity and the great blessing of marriage right now, and it's great because we have an enemy that would love to tear apart your marriage. Pray for protection. For those of you who are single, I want you just to pray for the, the couples around you right now, your parents' marriage, your friends' parents' marriage, whoever it is, and we're just gonna pray. And so whatever you gotta do to get yourself comfortable, we're gonna sit here for a few minutes and we're just gonna talk to God, which is what prayer is. And so you can bow your head, you can get on your knees, you can even keep your eyes open. God will listen to you if you have your eyes open, believe it or not, okay? And so let's just start off. Jesus taught us to pray and just say, Father. And as you talk to God, I want you to know that he is a father, which means that he sees you and he hears you. He loves you. And just thank him for that. just thank him 
all that he's given you. All that he is. And just tell him what's going on. He sees it. He knows it. Just name it. thinking of those things, take it to the cross, lay it down at Jesus' feet, thank him for forgiving it, and ask him to help you to overcome it. Father, you are so good, and we love you, and we thank you for Jesus. Jesus, thank you for coming on a mission to seek us and to serve us and to save us. We love you, and Holy Spirit, you reveal yourself as a helper, a guide, a counselor, a strength. And we just call on you to be who you say that you are. Would you be a helper, a guide, a counselor, and a strength for every single one of us? Help us to overcome sin. Help relationships to mend. Help us to have the courage to confess. Change our hearts. Make us more like Jesus. And God, I pray that you would just be with us in our marriages. Would you protect us from the enemy that would want us to just separate? Give us a soft heart, a heart like Jesus, that we would love each other well. Help those that are hurting. Comfort those that feel shame. We trust you. And we ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. So guys, we're going we're gonna to sing. But I want to encourage you, if you just need to sit and just you have a burden to pray for somebody, if you just need to pray with your spouse, do what you need to do. Stand when you're ready and we can sing. We're going to sing about the Jesus that walks with us, that feels for, with us, that has the power to help us. And so this time is for you to meet with God, whether that's through prayer in your seat with your spouse or standing and worshiping him. So we're going to sing.